everyone, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to talk to you about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It is coming up quickly, and you're not going to want to miss it. Come see what the show is all about on June 23rd and 24th at the Chattanooga Convention Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Come try and test all things mobile hunting. I'm talking stands, sticks, platforms, saddles, e-bikes, arch equipment, you name it, we got it. I personally can't wait to start looking at some new stands and sticks. I'm looking to replace some of my old stuff, and I know there's going to be great equipment there from some of those vendors. Our goal is to put on the whitetail event of the summer to help you become the most efficient hunter in this upcoming season. Tickets are on sale now at the mobilehuntersexpo.com. And you know what? If you can't make the first show, then come out to the Northern Show at the Kalamazoo County Expo Center Kalamazoo, Michigan on July 28th and 29th. I can't wait to see you there. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, Custom Ammunition and Gunworks. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used a 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. down baby oh my gosh that was freaking awesome this is my first public land buck this is my second set of the season i can't even... oh my gosh i just heard him fall i just heard him fall uh. i just shot my kentucky buck we're gonna fuel by the outdoors we're your hosts, Rick Cates, Chris Leppert, and Josh Luck. What's up? Hey, everyone. And tonight we're joined by Dieter Cocken of Face Off Taxidermy, Stealth E-Bikes, and among other things. Um, he is a jack of all trades, as as we have uh, just kind of talked about a little bit before the podcast. How are you doing, Dieter? Doing great. Excited to uh, talk some deer hunting here. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped. So I'm going to let Chris, because he's nerding, he wants to nerd out on things, um, a whole whole lot here so i'm gonna take take the mic over to him all right so <clears throat> first off i think we get into who you are um maybe go into your background a little bit as far as how you got into hunting maybe talk about you know your your professional sports days and stuff like that and then why don't we roll into um a little bit about taxidermy i'll i'll start talking a little bit about that with you because i i've done it myself so it's kind of cool to have somebody to 
talk about that with because nobody really understands what the hell you're talking about generally so that is true <laughs> yeah i guess uh i started bow hunting when i was a sophomore in high school so that was the late late 80s so aging myself a bit but <laughs> heard from a, a buddy who i played hockey with and just kind of got involved bow hunting with his family and it was it was a good situation where i pretty much had freedom to do whatever i wanted they kind of point me in the right direction but it was kind of trial by error and learn as you go and continued bow hunting into college where i ended up going to northern michigan where i played hockey so that's way up in the upper peninsula of michigan and kind of got introduced to that great deer hunting culture in in michigan for as much crap as michigan gets it does have a you know a, a good deer hunting culture where you know the the camaraderie and everything like that is is as good as anywhere else so oh yeah so I went through college and continued playing professionally after college for 10 years i was mostly in the in the minors but i played some in the nhl and playing hockey for 10 years kind of bounced me all over the place and i continued bow hunting every chance i could get i was the one guy who'd probably We'd practice in the morning, so we had pretty much every afternoon off if we didn't have a, a game that day. So I'd hit the woods and, you know, I was able to learn a lot of different things, a lot of different terrain, shooting deer in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York. Then uh, yeah, I think that's more, maybe a couple other. Well, I hunted in Maine and then some in Michigan too. So wow. that kind of shaped my shape my style just because i was forced to be mobile than i probably would have or i probably wanted to at that point just because i didn't know if i was going to get traded or called up or whatever so i couldn't really leave stands in the trees so pretty much up and down and you know started actually saddle hunting in 2005 so i've been doing right. that for for quite a while and you know that at, at the at that time there was no small tree stands really available so it was kind of the logical thing for for me to do and you know i still hunt out of a saddle and incorporate a lot of better equipment these days than there than there was back then oh yeah what uh what saddle did you start with took the words I out of my started, mouth <laughs> the only one they sold was the old trophy line that was the only one that i could find and i mean there's it's tough for people these days to even comprehend how it was back then. I mean, there's no forums or no nothing. Like, you didn't. The only way I found out about it is I ended up, John Eberhardt must just re released his book right along, right along there and uh, bought that book. And, you know, it kind of fit what I was doing. And, and ended up, I think they had one at MC Sports or whatever. And, bought that and i probably used that saddle for like 10 years till i think arrow hunters started coming out with new stuff but so i hunted off that and then pretty much right around the same time that's when the original lone wolf assassin platform came out and i bought i actually bought a couple of those before they they stopped selling them so you know it's kind of the original saddle with a with a larger platform kind of the the precursor for the kind of the, the hybrid style that's gaining popularity now yeah you see a lot of guys going to that hybrid style 
a lot of people forget the trophy line has been around that long yeah yeah they were uh they were the original back then i think the only other option was that uh that sling the real minimalist one i can't remember anderson sling i think that's what it like was like a sit drag or whatever yeah the sit drag and guys are making their own stuff and it was kind of a like it was uh i think the golden age of saddle hunting is right before it started to peak where there's just like the diy stuff like how creative guys were getting and making their own like all these companies these, those are guys building stuff in their basements and yeah. uh you know so that was kind of cool to see that explode to, uh you know that's honestly what kind of hit home with me was i was attempting to get into saddle hunting had a buddy that made a few saddles let me use one wasn't a real big fan of it it was kind of a direct rip off of that first tethered one that um i think it was the mantis um wasn't a, wasn't a big fan. And then I started following some other people. And at one point I thought that I could just take any safety harness and hang in it. And I'm like, looking back on myself, like what a moron, like, there's no way in hell. So, um, once I kind of dove into things a little more and started meeting some of these guys that are doing like what you said, they're doing this stuff in their basements, their freaking pole barns, kitchens, whatever, just trying to make a few. And that was still, you know, I think one other thing we forget is the wait time that you had on a saddle for a, a few years. Like it, you weren't getting it in a few months or right now. Like you're going to wait three, six months, sometimes longer. It was crazy. So, but it was, it was booming, man. Well, I remember those those original Lone Wolf Assassins were selling for $800 on eBay back when guys were making platforms out of the XOP seats and stuff. Yes. I mean, it was, I mean, there's just, there's just no equipment there. I mean, there wasn't even words for the equipment, like people weak side. I mean, the word didn't even exist when I started and, you know, the yep. hip pinch, I mean, it was just get into saddle shape and suck it up but yep that's pretty you gotta figure you gotta figure there's a whole vocabulary that has been rounded out in just in the past 10 years 10 10 to 15 years in in the hunting world surrounding this specific style of hunting that didn't exist you know prior to 2005 really like there, like there was there was nothing might be like the last three or four years honestly well, like so many different things have come to fruition that you know weren't around at all well well and i've looked at some of the stuff josh you're muted uh i've looked at some of this stuff <laughs> and, and like um you know you show you showed me like a mad a mad rock one day when we were when we were out screwing around with your safeguard yeah and you're you're like have you ever seen one of these i'm like i used to use one of those during rock climbing and like a lot, a lot of the stuff that like you look at was uh, very, very similar to what the rock climbing community was using at, at, at certain points. Um, like if you were just like a weekend climber and that kind of stuff. And when we had the show last year, I'm sitting there looking at the stuff. I'm like, if you just took the webbing out of this, this would be a, you know, it almost looks exactly like the harness I had 
you know, back in college when we used to climb the gorge. Yeah. Yeah. So with getting into hunting and everything, um, you make, you make some e-bikes. I'm going to jump into that a little bit. Um, what got you into doing this e-bike thing? So, I mean, I grew up on a, on a dirt bike and that when we were younger, I mean, we didn't have a ton of money. So, I mean, I was riding my bike everywhere, tearing them apart and doing th different things like that. And then my wife's dad was a Trek dealer. So he, I was putting together bikes with him. So, so I knew basics about bikes and bikes components and stuff like that. And then I started to implement uh, just a regular fat tire bike and uh, you know, what I was doing with hunting probably about four years ago and right away, you know, I realized that, you know, it was definitely helping me to get to areas where other guys, you know, didn't want to go that far. Still with pedaling the bicycle, it was quite a bit of work. You're still, you know, the getting sweaty and, and those concerns to where I started looking at the e-bikes and, you know, I was, I wanted something good. So I was looking at the, you know, basically the big three in the industry right now are Quiet Cat, Rambo, and Baku. So I was looking at those bikes, and from what I knew about bike parts, I was like, well, where the heck is the, where's the cost coming from? And so then I was researching the motors and the batteries, and my original plan was just to build my own, buy the motor, buy the battery, make a mid-drive hunting e-bike similar to what those other companies were offering. And through that process, I got hooked up with a couple different companies that basically import e-bikes to the United States. These are the same companies that are supplying Quiet Cat, Rambo, back, back. I mean, they're, they're importing their bikes for the most part. I think they're just buying fully completed bikes and selling those. And I realized there was kind of a gap in the, in the marketplace where, you know, what I wanted and what other guys wanted quality wise, I could, I could provide at a, at a lower price and so i originally started selling a couple e-bikes that were you know derailleur e-bikes where you'd shift the gears and everything and after doing that for a year and talking with you know the guys i was selling bikes to i realized that you know the main concern for hunters was you know i need a bike that's gonna go up hills and i don't want to pedal so they didn't care how many gears it had they just wanted it to do that that one pass that hunters needed to do. So I was like, well, why the derailleur is such a problematic part on the bike with guys catching it on sticks and grass and, and corn stop. So if I just get rid of the derailleur and make it one gear and make that gear so that it can climb pretty much everything you need it to climb, you know, that'll be a way more bulletproof setup for hunters and so right now i'm selling two single speed e-bikes and they're kind of they're i i mean single speeds have been around forever in mountain biking but they've never really been geared the way they are now for for hunters specifically to climb because normally when you make a single speed you don't want it just to have that one gear where you're pedaling so fast just to keep up but the hunters are just using straight throttle so the single speed is kind of something you know pretty unique that uh that I'm offering and and that's the the most popular bike we sell by far. Okay. Yeah, that's one thing I really liked about your bikes. I feel like there's 
a ton of different options nowadays. I mean, like you said, there's there's the big three, and then you have these other brands that are that are popping up, and it's like I've like briefly looked at them in the past, and it's like, well, what am I looking for? Do I want a mid drive, a rear drive? Like, what are the differences? What is best suited for a hunter and all this? And there's, it's like you can get lost with all the different options. I feel like that are out there nowadays. But what I like with your bikes is kind of like you said. I mean, you're public land hunter and mobile hunter yourself so you kind of know the needs of what we need as mobile hunters and you just that's that's what you made and that was kind of nice and i like and i've listened to multiple podcasts where you were on and just explaining your process and kind of what you put in the bike and it's it's just nice to know that there's some companies that really pay attention to our needs i feel like i don't know i always have trouble trusting some of those other companies because i see the price point and i'm like like where in the heck is this price point coming from i mean <laughs> for, for i it'll be interesting what they do with their prices just because at some point they're going to be so much higher than the options and people are going to kind of realize what's going on because like the vast majority of people right now are basically just drop shipping bikes and if you know anything about that basically it's if you ordered a bike from me then i contact the company and then they ship it right to you well i didn't want to do that because there's parts on the bike that just don't hold up to to what hunters do to the bike so i take every bike comes to me i tear it apart and then i rebuild it with better parts so that when you get the bike you don't have the problems and one of the big problems was the headset on a lot of these imported bikes is just a it's a light duty headset and and hunters are terribly rough on equipment so the headsets the, the front bearing equipment or mm -hmm. front bearing system that holds the the front fork and keeps everything tight in the front of the bike so if, if you ever felt a bike and you hold on to the front brake and you feel some loose shaking in the front of the bike that's a that's a faulty headset so right okay. away i realized that the, the headsets were bad so i ordered you know the best headsets they sell out there put them into the bike put other you know small things that that hunters need where like i put the biggest pedals i can buy with with grip on them so that if you have muddy boots and then making sure that there's high quality batteries because i think that the biggest difference between an expensive bike and a cheap bike is probably going to be the battery and a cheap battery will burn your house down because they're basically a, an e-bike battery is a series of cells wired together. So it's, it's kind of like taking a bunch of double a trail cam lithium batteries and wire them all together into one system. Well, that system is only going to be as strong as the welds between each battery and then uh, the battery management system is actually a computer system that that monitors the health of the battery so the easiest way to cut for these cut companies to cut corners is to make cheap batteries and those are the ones that if you've ever seen online where people's houses have started on fire or e-bikes have started on fire those are usually cheaper batteries where they can't handle the the load of a charge or there's they're just not tested the same way there's a certification process where the battery's tested so that it can maintain a load it can maintain impact it can maintain a bunch of different things without you know 
breaking down to the point where it becomes a fire hazard. So, I mean, you're going to want, whether you buy a bike from me or you order your own parts and make your own bike, don't skip on the battery because, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. Damn. So, no. so I mean, based off of everything that you're saying, you know, and, and like tearing these bikes apart, making sure you have the right battery, making sure you have the right headset, how much R&D and how long did you kind of like go through this process of creating a bike that you felt was most suitable for you, not only your needs, but a hunter's needs um, that wasn't kind of like a one-size-fits-all bike? So I started the the bikes I sold for the first year were probably closer to a stock bike. And then all winter long, I was tearing apart bikes in my basement. I mean, I bought so many bike parts because when you make a single speed bike, you have to have perfect distances between your front chain ring and your rear cog. Otherwise you have too much slack in the chain. It's called, it's basic. When you make a single speed bike, it's, it's called in the single speed world, it's called the unicorn gear. And it's because it's almost impossible to find the right gear where the distance between those two things perfectly fits the chain because chains are, they're not the same link one after another. There's a wide link and a skinny link. So you can't get away with very much for, for variations in that distance. Otherwise the chain's too long and then you're forced to use a really long chain tensioner or to have a, another system that's, you know, as problematic as a, as a derailleur. So it was kind of testing all these different variations. And finally, you know, I found the unicorn gear for two different bikes to where I could put the, the right gearing that hunters need to climb. And that's basically a small front chain ring and a fairly large rear cog. And that combination is, is your climbing gear. So you can figure out the climbing ability of any bike by you divide the number of teeth in your front chain ring by the number of teeth in your rear cog. And it's it's the mathematical equation for the for the mechanical advantage of, of the gearing on the bicycle. So I can look at, you know, like the Baku Mule is a well-respected e-bike for, for climbing. So I can look at what the climbing gear on that bike is and I can recreate that number in a single speed so that that bike will climb as good as the Baku mule with the only drawback being that it'll have a maximum speed of 15, 16 miles an hour. Cause you don't have all those other gears to cycle through to that, that help you gain speed. Okay. That's pretty slick. So are you pretty much on your e-bike every time you're hunting for the most part? I am now. I mean, it was, uh, once you use it, it's one of those things where you can, you, you'll never go back <laughs> because you realize how much it helps you just, and for the, for the public land guy, you know, even if, even if you're not using it to, you know, go three miles into the woods, you know, right now I'm using it to hide my car park in a totally different spot, hide my access and, you know, check trail cameras, be more efficient because efficiency kills deer. If you can, if you can accomplish more scouting, more checking trail cameras, get more Intel, that information is what 
helps you make the right decision. So if you can use an e-bike to get more information, then you're going to be you're going to be ahead of the curve rather than kind of reacting and and trying to play catch up with with what's going on out there. You just brought up a point that I never even thought of, which is hiding access. And I I like wouldn't in in my mind like and Chris and I have talked about this before when we'll go turkey hunting like we'll take both our cars and we'll throw them in the parking lot to make sure it make it look like there's more people there or things along those lines but it makes even better sense if you've got different trailheads putting your truck at or whatever at one side than taking your e-bike and driving to another in order to hide where you're actually going to that's I've never even thought of that I I, I learned something new today that's awesome because you can do even as like with what you're saying like i've used it too before where i'll drop the bike off downstream launch the canoe or whatever upstream the hunting spots halfway between and then instead of having to paddle uphill drift down to the bike and then bike back to the truck and then pick everything up that way so i mean you can That's do a, a bunch of, of different idea. things that that make you more efficient to where, you know, I mean, there's a lot of awesome spots that are on small acres of public land, but mm-hmm. if you park, if you park there more than one day, good luck. So if you find yourself, you know, a good hidden spot, I mean, park your truck two miles away, ride the bike and you'll have it all to yourself for as long as you want it. But I mean, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys who hunt trucks where, Oh yeah. They just see a truck, they're walk, walking in there. I mean, it's the same. I remember right when I used to fish, like you could throw a freaking buoy that, before GPS. But if you throw a buoy in the worst spot on the lake, you'll have three guys right around you in, in uh, <laughs> 30 minutes. So, I mean, wow. that's how some people, that's how they operate. So, I mean, if you, uh, if you hide your access and keep, I mean, those good public spots you got to keep hidden and it's amazing how many people don't appreciate that too and it's it's never a guy who has one it's always the people that will really don't kill a whole lot of anything if i'm being honest um not telling people about those especially the wrong people which the wrong person really is anybody that's not in your very very tight circle like that guy could take my wife home drunk from the restaurant that I'm at kind of buddy. Like we're not worried type deal. Anybody beyond that? I don't want to tell them about my spot where I'm at. And it's, it's funny because people will berate the shit out of you over it. Um, when you, they're all, oh, where'd you get that at? Or, you know, whatever. Where's that? What, what do you mean? What do you, what did you just ask me that? Like I'm none your business county. I'm like, dude, we're it's fight. even it's even the states. It's like I I think I, I made up the, I'm not even saying what state anymore. Like just cause it I mean we're figure it out, I guess. I don't know. Like, cause that's the first question. It's like what county, what it's like because even with states, guys can figure it out. So it's just like I still cause like I I grew up like the guy who taught me how to, the guy who taught me taxidermy and taught me how to, he was a serious, he was killing big deer before anybody. So he was kind of a mentor and he was, he was as 
is quiet. Like those are the tight to the vest kind of guys. I mean, you could go out, you could have freaking 10, 30 inch walleyes in the live well. And somebody asked you if you caught anything. Nope. Didn't catch anything. So, I mean, they zero information for anybody. And so yeah. I was, I was like that forever. Like I, I basically refused to have a Facebook page and do anything. And so I was kind of just a loner. I didn't post anything. And then it kind of got to the point where I think, cause I had been done playing hockey for probably 10 years and I missed the camaraderie part of it. So I missed like being part of a group and kind of feel part of a team. So I was like, I want to kind of, I want to be a part of some kind of company out there. And so I was like, well, if I want to do that, then I better start putting some stuff out there or whatever. So I slowly, I actually had a fake name to start. <laughs> slowly started, yeah, it was Ranger Matthews. And then he got shut down for, for being a fake person. But so I posted <laughs> up for, for a while and then, uh, you know, kind of got part of a group, got into, uh, with Lone Wolf Custom Gear. And those yeah. guys have been great to me. And just to feel part of the team again and to have that, uh, cause hunting got a little bit lonely for a while where, you know, you can only kind of <laughs> take a picture by yourself for so, so many times. Sure. And it's like, uh, so yeah. it's kind of brought some of the excitement back. And uh, so I like to share some stuff, but like I said, I mean, I think might as well not even say states and stuff we've, like that. We've had that conversation with a couple of our buddies recently where we don't, we don't think we'll just say like Midwest or North or South. And that's about it. Um, maybe like a few subtle hints here and there for some of our friends to know or something. But like, I thought when, uh, when the Missouri, they were trying to charge people some astronomical amount of money to film if you were on a WMA. Now, if you're in like, per se, the Mark Twain, the yeah. National Forest, then you're you're fine. You can film, run trail cams, but if you were on a WMA, you had to pay like one or two hundred bucks a day to film something something ridiculous. And I think part of that might have been battling against like the THP crowds that, you know, or, or the THPs themselves to keep people from like just crashing the freaking state basically, because it is a good state. But um, I thought, man, I sure hope I don't find out otherwise that you can't film, you know, in the, um, the Mark Twain or something, because I'm going there thought, man, that would suck. So why don't we just call it like a buck named Mo or something stupid like that? Like we ain't got to say Missouri. Just I don't, I don't want to get in trouble for something that I wasn't even trying to do. Like that'd be bullshit. So um, no, I, I can identify with that for sure, man. Keeping stuff secret. It's important. I, I think because I don't know. People love to – I don't know if they like to guess and figure it out more than anything because I remember – posted one thing and had like some random road and they're like yeah i know where that is and it's like jesus but uh yeah, yeah. i mean, I mean it's human nature too because like i watched that the last latitude one 
they post with those sheds and you're like, eh, I wonder what that is. <laughs> oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. I even get curious about some of those guys, some of my buddies um, that I don't necessarily share spots with. And you all, you always just, it'd be cool to know. And I, I would think, I feel pretty confident that I would never like intrude on somebody like that. But at the same rate, I don't blame them for not telling me because they don't, you know, they don't know that, but yeah, the man, their last video, they were piling sheds on, which I'll be there this weekend. So I'm pretty excited. Not, not where they were, but I'll, I'll be out that way. So. You were screwed. Oh, I know. I know. It is now. <laughs> so I was kind of tripping balls a little bit when um, they started finding sheds and the way they described the place. I'm like, damn i texted josh i'm like damn it i i there's no way they weren't where i was and i talked to jake and he said it they weren't um so we'll see but if i don't find any sheds i'm just going to call him and be like jake you were there weren't you <laughs> no um i hope i find a few sheds but more importantly hopefully i can find a few scrapes to get some cameras on and go pull off a freaking world championship whitetail year man that'd be sweet <laughs> well that your world championship whitetail year it goes back to something you said Dieter, which chris and i have been trying to focus on more is uh, efficiency kills deer and we've been really trying to focus on that because we've been targeting more early season like i killed early season last year chris killed early season last year so that's just something we've been kind of focusing on and the the e-bikes I feel like, like you were saying, kind of really help out in the early season as far as like scouting, checking trail cams and all that, especially like with Chris going to multiple states. I think that would be a huge help. Those would yeah, have been I, amazing in Nebraska. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because, well, Nebraska was kind of one of the states that that said I need e-bikes. I mean, just because I was down there and it was kind of a – you know, there's people everywhere, but there's there's lots of places to get away from people, but it's just too far. And it's it's laid out where, you know, there's those, the roads for the farmers where they go to the watering tanks and all that stuff, like, especially if you're on the Western part. I mean, you could, if you have a bike, you could go freaking 10 miles back and get away from, from everybody. Mm -hmm. That was kind of one of the things for me and, you know, early season's really good too because you're usually like you'll hunt the morning and then the middle part of the day you have nothing so if you can pick if you can check 10 cameras instead of two to make your decision on where you're going to go that night i mean you're way better off yeah your your odds absolutely skyrocket and you talked about the little roads where the farmers go to tanks for the majority of what we were doing last year in nebraska we hung cameras on tanks and I'll be honest, I was even thinking as we're assembling those bikes yesterday, I thought about what we could have done had we had those last year. We could have went where I literally destroyed the paint job on my truck. It's got more racing stripes than Herbie. I mean, it is, it is freaking <laughs> laced. It is lined with freaking lines all over it from pine branches and cedar branches 
while I'm driving down these tiny little two tracks, just destroying my truck, the paint job anyway. Um, just trying to find new places where people aren't going and do those pine trees. They, they changed the life of the truck forever, pretty much. So uh, that would have been really nice to have because then you just scoot, you go faster than you could on the damn, in the damn truck at that point. It's a nice air conditioned ride, the wind in your face. I mean, the buck I shot last year, I wouldn't have shot, but just because I wouldn't have, it'd be highly unlikely I would have been that motivated to walk that far. I was like freaking 80 degrees. Can you so, roughly share? how far i mean i'm not yeah so it was, a, it, was a, it was a huge swamp so everybody knows that there's only so many places to park and pretty much 90 percent of it's probably illegal to park even if you wanted to so i mean driving the bike three miles from the lot to where nobody's entering in and going in that way and it wasn't even a terribly long walk from from where i parked the bike but as soon as i got there you know it's just a secluded area it was the hot part of the rut and then it was i think there's like three bucks chasing does in this thicket and then this big he ended up dressing 207 big big like uh, i think he was what was he he was an 11 pointer i can't remember 11 or a nine i don't know odd number <laughs> but uh yeah i ended up shooting him but just it opens up so many different worlds like so right now walking you probably have access to let's say even like 20 percent of the areas you want to hunt well the the bike opens up to where you have access to 40 to 60 percent so there's all kinds of spots that whether it was tactically ineffective or just your lack of motivation that uh that the bikes open up because the bikes are like another thing about that single speed was they're almost silent just because you have none of the rattling around with the derailleur and the chain and stuff like that so i mean you can get in there really quiet you can ditch the bike i i usually just hide it in a bush or i'll put uh you know i have like one of those fabric camouflage things i'll just throw on top of it if i'm really worried about it but i haven't had any problems with the bike and then i might just lock the back tire but you know you get there you're not sweaty. You can get to your tree. And at I the end, that's of bigger day, that people don't give that enough credit. And I've been really focusing on that. Like the last X amount of hike, take it slow, calm your breathing down, and that whole nine, which we'll get into that. I didn't mean to interrupt yeah, you, but I just right. want to put some emphasis on that because I don't think people give the sweaty and heavy breathing thing uh, enough credit. Because once you get tired too, you get you make stupid decisions. Like you get in a rush, and you get you might clang something that you wouldn't clang because you're getting annoyed with yourself, and you're starting yep. to eat, and you're like, I got to get up this tree so I can take this damn jacket off, and yep, whatever else. So yeah, I mean, making your life easier is is the the key to the bike. Sure, absolutely. I'm looking forward to kind of tapping into some of that. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit about taxidermy, and then we'll we'll dive into the scent okay. thing. Hold on, oh, I want to bring up one other thing on the bikes before we moved on. So, as just just with like regs, because regs for bikes are different 
in almost like every state. Everywhere you go, there are some states that are super e-bike friendly, others that it's like, these are the devil, you can't use them. Um, And I heard you talk on a podcast, Dieter, about the different classes. So some regs, we even put the bikes under different classes. I don't know if it's like a one, two, three system, but I think because your bikes are that single speed, they fall under a lower class which allows you to use them in other places where you might not be able to use other bikes. Is that correct? So the, the e-bike classificate, like the laws are a disaster, how they're written. So I'm my day job, I'm a state trooper. So I understand laws. I understand testifying at court. I understand what I need to do to, to prove a case in front of a, a judge or magistrate. So right now the federal classification is that, uh, 750 watts and lower is considered a bicycle Mm -hmm. and those are classified in three different classifications class three being over 28 miles an hour class two is or check that class three is over 20 miles an hour i believe i might even be messing these up so but class two is under 20 miles an hour 750 watts but everybody gets in this argument about the watts on the bikes because the motors are fully programmable so you can drop the so i sell a thousand watt mid drives which are which is the the motor that you need to climb hills because that motor has 160 newton meters of torque compared to a hub drive motor has only 80 newton meters of torque and a 750 watt bbso2 only has 120 newton meters of torque so you want that 160 newton meters of torque so you go into the settings, if you drop the max speed b- below 20 miles per hour, it drops the watts to 750 watts. So you would be in compliance with the 750 watts. And because the single speed is not capable, like it's mechanically incapable, you could prove it with, with a simple math equation that it can't exceed 20 miles per hour. So you wouldn't be able to be over what's considered kind of the speed limit for e-bikes. But going back to how none of these are getting enforced, and I've talked to our conservation officers and everything like that. So for for you to enforce a law where there's a where there's a watt limit on a bike, you would have to seize the bike as evidence and prove it at court. Otherwise, if you can't prove it's 750 watts, you can't win your case. So there's no unless they start seizing bikes, there's really no way for them to prove what watts that bike is up because it's a programmable motor. It's not It's not that you buy a motor and it can only function at this watt range, but you can, you can, you can jump those wattages way up to guys, you know, custom mod those motors. And I think they can get them up to maybe like 3000 watts. Wow. So the motors are programmable. So back to for, since they've been in, in existence, has always said that their bikes can be either class three, two, or one e-bikes. And they have the exact same motor as I have on my bikes. And they're doing the same thing where they go into the settings, drop the max speed below 20, and then you're a class two. And if you want to be a class one, all you have to do is disconnect the cable to throttle. And now it's only a pedal assist bike, which is a class one bike, if those are the regulations. So anything under 750 watts is technically considered a bicycle. 
And these won't get sorted out till basically some of these cases go to court and they go to state Supreme Court and then the US Supreme Court for, for further guidance on how these laws should be interpreted. And then a couple of cases that I've followed are where somebody got pulled over on an e-bike and had you know, a handgun or drugs or something like that or a suspended license. And so it's not hunting related, but it's a big difference. You can't, you can't, you can open carry a handgun on a bicycle, but you can't open carry a handgun on a motor vehicle or a motorcycle. So that's where that distinction of where they drawn the guideline yeah. for, for what are, is it a bicycle or is it a motor vehicle is more for the criminal cases that are moving ahead but once and so far the courts and any of those cases that have gone the criminal route the courts have only looked at the bike and said well what was the speed of the bike and then does it have pedals and if it wasn't going over 20 miles per hour by power of the motor and it has pedals they're saying it's a bicycle well in in the in the big the big gripe that I've always read or listened to about people who have who have arguments against this is it, it mainly deals with like federal wilderness areas and 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 get, getting back in there because that's where they try to apply that law more, I guess. But as you're stating, it's more of a secondary charge to a drug charge or something else when they when they try to catch some catch somebody when they're on one of these areas because they should they should basically just do it by speed limit because like speed like a speeding ticket has gone all the way to the supreme court and there's guidelines set by the supreme court where as a police officer i have to be this certified i have to do this check that check and that check i have to do this this and that and i have to do every one of those things otherwise i lose the case so that even a speeding ticket has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. And that's why it's the people versus fairency. And so that that ruling is the guideline for why radars are respected by you know magistrates. And if anybody's had to fight a speeding ticket, why the magistrate trusts that the radar works because it it's gone through that court process and all those those checks and balances have been have been hit by the officer. So they should just go to a speed limit because that's they can prove that with a simple radar gun for, for if they want to crack down on. You know, I can't see how I guess you could maybe go further. But if you're operating a bicycle at 15 miles an hour, you're doing way less damage than you would at 30 miles an hour. So just hit the set the speed limit and you know it'd be easy to enforce and people would have a better idea whether or not they're compliant hey everybody rick here from fuel by the outdoors and i'm here to tell you about a wonderful company saddies custom ammunition and gun works aaron satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used a 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition custom game loads, predator loads 
turkey loads, the saddies fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. Very true. So to clarify, we ran in, we ran into this in Nebraska. One of our buddies had brought an e-bike with them. It was kind of an off-brand one. I don't even remember what the name of it was. Do you remember what the name of it was? Yeah. I don't know. But there were certain areas where it said no motorized vehicles past this point. And then we were debating, like, well, is this does this classify as a motorized vehicle? Does it not? Like Absolutely not. So under 20 miles an hour and 750 watts is a bicycle. Wow. According so, to the law. So you'd only have to argue whether or not you're 750 watts, mechanically incapable of going over 20. But that's the, a motorized vehicle is over 750 watts and can travel at over 20 miles an hour by the power of the motor only. So not including your leg power or a hill. So it's will, so you'd have to prove this in court. So now let me ask you this. You might hate me for this question. So you're a police officer. We're out of state. We're what, like, 1200 or whatever miles away from home so now an officer pulls up and writes us a ticket and we have to go prove otherwise in court now technically you don't have to prove anything he's got to prove it but if we don't show up for our court case then we lose right so for the guys that are concerned and then you guys bought bikes for me so your bike comes with that dpc 18 display so when you go into that display and you drop your max speed it reads 750 watts on the screen so if an officer checks you and wanted to look at the bike he'd see 750 watts on the screen and then i mean it's it's got the one gear you're not going to be going over 20. i mean i can't i can't prevent officers from writing bad tickets so i mean if, if you were to get in trouble, like I'd, it'd be my opinion that, that it's a bad ticket. But I mean, I think everybody has unfortunately probably met a, a gung ho conservation officer or police oh, officer. And, oh yeah, you know, that, that's why there's those checks and balances through the court system. I mean, that's, that's, that's our remedy, you know, under the constitution where you're innocent until proven guilty. So they, it'd be his responsibility to prove that your bike was above 750 watts, but you'd obviously have to probably show up. I wonder if you could, you'd probably never stand a chance in hell if you did have to show up, take the day off work, travel, like. And I don't even know what the ticket is. Like people, it seems to be like a mythical ticket that I've never seen. Yeah. I asked, I asked our, conservation officers because i had the dnr was buying a couple bikes from from me so i'm like hey what are you doing with these things he's like we're not doing nothing with those things i don't know anything what's going on so i mean they're kind of in the dark too of what they can what they can enforce but i mean it's if you're out there tearing up the ground and making all kinds of problems i mean you're you might invite sure but some attention but i mean 
the bike. I mean, technically a bicycle for okay. if you see it, if you see uh, anywhere. So anywhere a bicycle is allowed, that should be allowed. Okay. If it says no motorized vehicles, as long as a bicycle, because there's bicycles may not be allowed in areas where motorized vehicles aren't allowed either. So as long yeah. as the bicycle is allowed, you should be good. Like it's technically classified as a bicycle when you look at like the criminal law with open carry and open intox and drunk driving, like it's considered a bicycle. Okay. I like it. Yeah. So, you can open carry and drive drunk on your e-bike. <laughs> <laughs> My lord. <laughs> that, that's good to know. I feel like that clarifies a lot of questions. For I'm people. not giving any recommendations. Yeah. yeah. But Key it's, point there. <laughs> it's good. It's good to have an understanding because it's always a question. It's like, well, can I, can I, things aren't clear. So and that's, the, that's why the, the law is written by like the legislature. They're not, they don't have to enforce the laws. Like in Michigan, like we have like a texting while driving law and it's written so terribly where you have to like prove it so specifically where you're allowed to do all kinds of crazy things on your phone, except these couple specific things. Well, it's just make it, you're not allowed to have your phone in your hand. Like make it enforceable and simple. Like they make these laws that are, that you can't win. And, you know, I've had to testify at all kinds of different court cases. And I mean, you're, you're arguing about the smallest little details when you're, when you're testifying. So, I mean, you have to understand like anytime I arrest somebody, I have to know, you know, what's the elements of this crime? What do I need to prove in court? And and how do I pretty much guarantee that I'm not violating this person's this person's rights? So I mean it's a lot more complicated than having, you know, writing a simple law on a piece of paper and thinking that it's gonna be enforceable in the real world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's tricky for you guys, man. I I don't envy you there. That's a that's a tough one. Ugh. So, with Grat, getting out of the minutia. What's that? So, getting out of the minutia. Right. Um, that was your you quick question. <laughs> What's that? That's I said a good that question. was his, his quick question about. Uh, yeah. Quick question. Thirty minutes later. <laughs> um, with taxidermy, how did you get into that? So I got into it. I was in high school. And back then I fished more than anything. We're catching a lot of big fish. We were getting them mounted from this local taxidermist who kind of was, he was, he worked with the guy that I grew up hunting with. So I got to be friends with him. He was kind of one of the, he's, you know, your initial impression of him was he was kind of like, you know, recluse, quiet, and you're always scared going over there and everything, but got to be really good buddies with him. And he taught me how to do fish when I was in high school. And then uh, later when I was playing hockey, then I learned how to do deer heads. And I just started, when I got back to, when I retired from playing hockey and back to Michigan, I was starting to take in quite a few deer heads, just mine and friends and stuff like that to the point where I was like, I might as well just, you know, I probably got to get licensed. So I ended up getting, getting my taxidermy license and I've probably been doing that for probably 12 years i think 
Really? Yeah. What is the what is the longest nose to eye measurement you've done? Most of the <laughs> the really big forms are like seven and three quarter, but <laughs> I've never. I mean, those are the those are the big two hundred plus twenty two inch neck deer. Those big forms, you know the forms. The Ohio taxidermy forms. So OTS I enjoy. I only my face. Deer head, bear, and fish. So I don't do everything. Okay. I um I killed a buck back in twenty thirteen. Um and this was before I knew a little more than I do now. I didn't know that you could do like a change out head. And so I'm looking around and the biggest form I could find, I ordered. I couldn't tell you what it was now. Might've been like a mirrors or something like that, but it was an eight and a quarter inch nose to eye measurement. Just an absolute freaking donkey of a deer. Ended up going like, uh, I think he's just shy of 163. Um, he's got 16 scoreable points, like 40, 45 or 46 inches of mass. Just ridiculous deer. Um, hands down the biggest body, biggest neck, head, all that I've ever killed. Um, but most of mine were in that seven and a half to seven and three quarter that I took in that were like pretty good bucks. And then anything under that seven and a half mark generally ended up being, you know, pretty small. I think I took in a couple that were under seven. They were pretty, pretty small deer. That's a small um, one. Yeah, that's a small one. Um, what's your favorite mount you've done? Uh I mean, I like them all. Like it's a, like they're all. I mean, the memory and just the they always they all look cool on the wall. You know, they they look way better mounted than than just the rack or the European. Like it just sure. brings life. And each one you mount, like you could mount. I could go down there and mount ten on the exact same form with the exact same ears, and they'd all look different. And sure, they're all yeah, they're all unique. Do you have a favorite fish you've done? I caught some really big, like my goal was always to catch an eight pound bass. And I caught a couple of those. This is a, I ended up having to go to Texas when I was playing in, playing in Texas, but in some little ponds and stuff. So I ended okay. up getting eight pound bass out of there. Cause that was, that's what I grew up fishing large mouth. So that's like a, I think like a 24 inch or. That's a big bass. Yeah. Damn. That's a Those real are, big bass. <laughs> that's that's probably the most um one of the more cool things I've done just because when you get that thing carded finally and dried out and you start doing the paint job starting out man I'm looking at this thing as I'm going through the layers and I'm like this looks like shit, man. <laughs> this is going to look stupid, like somebody's painting a clown face or something. And then you get to the end and you're like, man, that looks pretty good. And then you add that clear coat and you're like, oh, that looks awesome as hell. That's pretty neat. Yeah, fish. Because I started, when I started on fish, we had to carve our own forms. See, so by these. Oh, wow big blue blocks of styrofoam yep. basically for floating docks and stuff and you'd carve the forms out of there so there's there's way more to it when i started now you can pretty much buy 
like taxidermies, you know, way easier than, I mean, the old school guys who are making all their own forms and, and uh, having to recreate different things compared to you can order almost everything these days and uh, fits together pretty good. Yeah. I remember I had a guy bring me a 26 and a half inch rainbow trout. His like thousand year old father caught it in a stream in North Carolina. The dude's like 85 or 90 and he's having it done for Father's Day. So I get that thing all skinned out, remove all the meat and everything. And I've got it soaking in like a solution. Dude, I picked that thing up out of the sink and it literally was like you bought cheap, like Walmart paper towels and let them sit in the water for a week and tried to pick them up. Like it just literally just fell through my fingers and I'm freaking out. So call the dude and I'm like, Hey, like, think you probably should have got this in the freezer a little sooner or something went wrong here, dude. Um, and I ended up, I saved it. I got the, I want to say it was called magic smooth. It's that clear two part epoxy that you mix together. Super sticky. But as, as soon as you add water, just a little bit and rub it, you can smooth it right out and shape it into whatever you want. So I covered the entire fish form in this, put fake fins and a fake head on it. And then I took a straw <laughs> and cut it at an angle and put every single individual scale mark on that fish and then painted it. And it turned out great. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Although... I had done smallmouth, perch, and largemouth. I had never done a trout. <clears throat> there was a lot of that, like, uh, I think it's called, like, fleck, flake, whatever you call it, in the paint. And I painted it in my basement, and my basement looked like a freaking snow globe. There was glitter, fleck, flake, whatever the hell you call it, all over the place. So I'll probably be dead soon. Um, <laughs> it was crazy. So, um, let's I, move on. I have another quick question. No. Quick, quick, I, is, have, a, quick is a relative term for you. So this can be a simple yes or no, but I have to ask because Peter is from the North and he's a taxidermist. I'm going to ask about Chris's all time hunting hero. Dieter, oh. is the, the Rampala buck real or fake? Oh, jeez. Oh, I love this. That's a no question, John. I was, look, look, at, look at Chris's face. Did you see his mouth drop? I, <laughs> I kind of... If anybody knows Troy Pottinger... Yes. He's as... He's as honest as they come. Like he's, and he was, he was buddies with Mitch. And another part of the story is a half a mile from my house, I talked to the guy who was, his ex-wife was Rompola's sister. And he said he held it. So I don't, it could be like, I can, 
it could go either way. I don't know. It's definitely That's a very a political mystery, answer, Dieter. Mystery for the ages. I'd like to believe it's real. Like I, I just can't see. And you see criminals do all kinds of things, but I can't see a person going down that big a rabbit hole and not thinking that it would get found out. So I don't know. But there's so there's so many weird things, and then oh, so yeah. many people say it's it's real. I just don't see how you could fake it and get away with it. Basically, like with a with doing taxidermy. The only way I think you could really get that buck laying out there like that and have, you know, the the rack attached and you can't see a, an incision or what, you would literally have to make like a soft mount or something. Like you're not just going to go find a doe or some kind of deer and, you know, make your incisions, remove part of the head and put it like just doesn't work like that. It look that thing would look goofier in hell. And I know everybody talks about these ears. I've seen like a kajillion deer with droopy ears while they're alive and dead. Like, and when you have a big deer like that, I could really see where the ears would, you know, be big and droopy, just like his big ass nose and everything else, you know, just size being a little different. And from what I heard, that was a pretty old deer wasn't it didn't they say it was like i don't know i mean i know right where it was shot like it was shot so like people say you know it was shot why haven't anyone's any others been shot well that area got developed like it was from what i've heard it was right outside of traverse city so it's been so it's no longer the way it was and i mean from for me looking at some of the other pictures are more concerning than that one, but like, I, I agree. I don't see anything in that picture that, that, uh, you know, is worrisome for, for what I'm looking at as a taxidermist. Yeah. What they need to do. So if anyone's listening, it can do this. You should do it. Um, you can take AI now and, get clear images of old photos. I, I, had, I think it was an article I read. They did that with like that old famous like Bigfoot photo. Yeah. And then took AI and just cleared it right up and people were like, oh, that was fake. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I'm pretty sure you could do that now. You're, you, you're, gonna, you trust, you're gonna trust AI. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Same people that kicked me off of Facebook. They could be lying to us just as much. My man. That's. <laughs> That's my fellow weed baby brain right there, baby. This is how the Matrix started, Josh. The whole time I'm sitting there like, well, what if the AI people are are lying to you and want to make it seem fake? Like, then what? Awesome. Yeah, program the AI. Yep. Somebody doesn't believe in Mitch Rompola. Just like the Zuck kicking us off Facebook for saying kill or gun or (laughs) what it like. I'll, uh. My deer hunting. I'll ask my father-in-law because he works with a lot of AI for writing codes for his company. So I'll be like, "Hey, do you know what AI can, that can clear this up?" He 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 might know. <laughs> but then 
No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're not even going to get into that. I want to talk about something else. Okay. Uh, other, than, other than Josh's short questions that turn into small books. <laughs> I, I had to take advantage of the opportunity. I understand I, that. I, I, did, uh, I did appreciate the question, though. That was yes. Anytime we talk to somebody from Michigan, we just got to ask them, do you love Mitch or do you hate his guts? <laughs> Basically. Um, so you are a canine handler. Um, how long have you done that? Uh, six years. Six years? Okay. Now, I want to dive into some scent. Scent control, scent killer, scent. All that stuff. Yep. We can eliminate your name from the podcast if you want, so you can answer 100% truthfully. We'll just put guy. <laughs> no, it's it, it. I enjoy the conversation. The problem with this, with the scent conversation, is it's too many variables. Two different. No, the two different sides are arguing about totally different things. Like if we if we just reframed it as it's basically scent reduction theory so it's a theory so we can debate the theory but the problem is it gets argued as scent free and then this guy knows that that's impossible so they're arguing about two different things okay so this guy's arguing that scent free is impossible and this guy says well it works for me and they're arguing about different things if they just talked okay here's the theory so the theory is that Deer judge distance by odor concentrations. And I see that in my dog where, like, if I'm going after a bad guy and we get within such a distance, his behavior changes because he knows that the person's close. So do deer judge distance by scent concentrations? I'd say they probably do. And then the uh, the next part is, are humans capable of reducing their odor to a significant level? So anybody who works out in the gym and then goes out to dinner with their wife knows that they can reduce their odor by taking a shower. So can we reduce our odor? Most likely we can reduce it to some level. We can argue about whether or not that'll be beneficial. And then the next thing is, would the deer react differently if they thought you were 100 yards away or 10 yards away? So most of those parts of the theory are plausible and the big thing is tree stand height because nobody who believes in so-called scent elimination is hunting on the ground or at lower levels they're ironically quite high (laughs) and with testing the dogs like the first time you put a person in a tree stand and have the dog try to find them they're very inefficient at it to where they'll be, you know, they'll run 50 yards this way, realize that the odor concentrations drop and run 50 yards this way. And it takes them quite a while to figure out that the person's in an elevated position because they've never seen it. And when you train the dogs, the first time you do it, you'll put a person at five feet, let them figure that out. Next time you do it, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet. So you kind of train the dogs to, okay, when I encounter this type of an odor profile, there's a likelihood that the person's not on the ground, they're, they're elevated, and then they'll start to actually look into trees for, for people in, in certain situations. Because a person in a tree is very, very dangerous for me. So I want my dog to be able to identify what's going on if they, if they come into that 
type of an odor profile. So, I mean, that's the that's the nuts and bolts of the argument. And the biggest thing about where where you, you can take a lot of what the dogs can show you and bring it into deer hunting. And I've learned a ton working with dogs that's made me a better hunter. But the way the dogs are trained, the dogs are trained to detect the least detectable amount of order, odor and follow that to the source of the odor, which is something the deer will never, most likely never do with a, with a human. So the dog's behavior is gonna be different and the deer are gonna detect odor and the deer have to make a decision whether or not they feel they're in trouble. And that's up to the individual deer because a deer in a suburban environment might not think it's in trouble if it thinks the person's 50 yards away. But, you know, if the, that person crosses whatever threshold and leaves their yard and enters into the area of the deer, then they re react totally differently. So to make a long story short, being a canine handler has almost made me push the limits even further with my deer hunting compared to it hasn't made me more conscious of well it's made me more conscious but it hasn't made me play it safer i've probably played it more aggressively because i understand that i can push the envelope and if i can tip things in my favor to where i'm making it more difficult for the deer to figure out exactly what's going on if the deer makes a mistake i can kill them sometimes the deer won't make a mistake move on to the next one but that's a lot of like hunting off winds like i don't i don't need to have the wind in my face a lot of off winds different situations where where i think i can create because we're, we're making the deer make a decision on whether or not it it thinks it's in trouble and we can make that an easy problem or a very complex problem for them to figure out so an easy problem would be a deer approaches from 300 yards directly downwind coming straight at you he's gonna he's gonna figure that out it's a very simple problem especially if you're on the ground as soon as you go up on the tree the problem's a little more difficult you start angling your wind to the left to the right becomes more difficult if you angle it at a 40 or 90 degree angle it's it's even more difficult so i mean that's kind of i want to make the deer in a situation where they're not necessarily going to come up with the right answer and hopefully that gives me an opportunity. Okay. It just seems where I always get hung up is the fact that, you know, the deer, the dogs, they smell essentially at a molecular level. Um, like we can't even technically see at a, a molecular level. You know what I mean? So I want to say the gentleman on the Southern Outdoorsman, what do you say, Josh? A dog needs seven or nine molecules to pick up and identify a scent is that right that's that's detection so that's where i think the argument gets lost so there's a big dish difference between detection and problem solving and coming up with the right conclusion because my dog like he may get a whiff here or there but he might not be able to solve the problem and and work it right to source like he might have to be a little bit closer to where you know you're talking about seven molecules or whatever so they'll be able to detect that, but a deer can smell you from a half mile away. But just the fact of them detecting that odor doesn't isn't going to automatically lead to this result. Right. So they're 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 right away making a distance calculation, and it's 
I mean, they, they do it all the time. So it's, you know, it's, you know, they don't even think about it, but in their head, they're like, okay, this, because at a certain height, the odor might not even hit the ground. So that's the big thing with, yeah. with tree stand height is that, you know, you're making it way more difficult to get winded at kind of those, those bow hunting distances, you know, further away, it might start dropping and get to them. And there's a lot of goofy, I mean, everybody who sat around a campfire can tell you how many goofy things happen. So sure. any type of deer hits the brakes and is sitting there, he's trying to figure out the problem. Right. He detected something. He's not sure what direction it came from, and he's not sure how far away it is. That's why he's standing in that spot. And that's why they'll almost always run where they came from, because they're not yes. sure exactly yeah. which way the problem is. Yeah. So they're they're making a a decision on whether or not they they think they're they're in trouble. So the scent reduction theory would be, well, if I'm able to cut my odor in half, does that make that deer more likely to take one more step it definitely doesn't make them less likely to take one more step but scent reduction is a cost benefit problem to where you know you take the time and effort it takes you to to do that and are you getting a benefit if you're hiking three miles into a swamp there's zero benefit because you've destroyed any effort you've taken right. and right. if you're and if you're using your scent reduction regiment to prevent you from going to those places that again is a negative for you as a hunter so i think it's a complex think, conversation <laughs> i mean there's common sense things you can do like the one thing i'll say whether or not you believe in it like when you talk about you know ground tracks and ground odor like what's if you wear your boots at the gas station and then walk into the woods like that, that gasoline and that odor will be on that trail and that environment for weeks after you've left. Yeah. That's a, yep. that's a, that's a permeating odor that, that sticks around for, for quite a while. So even if you're not going to do anything, like if you just had a pair of hunting boots that you only use for hunting, you'd be ahead of the game when it at least comes to, to ground odor because ground odor is more complicated than people think too because probably more than half of that odor is the disturbed vegetation compared to what you think is actually being transferred directly from your boot which is where there's no there's almost i'll tell you there's almost zero benefit to rubber boots i agree wow so you're the second canine handler we've heard that from yes That's he is tom said um the southern outdoorsman because basically you're disturbing all those microbes they put out that scent and he was he was kind of basically i think he kind of hit on like how different animals create different ground disturbance and that's kind of why like a truck driving out there doesn't bother a deer because they know that it was a truck uh, you know so it's not a human basically they know what human ground disturbance is i guess and they hit on it cuz he said he claimed that human scent generally will dissipate after like 10 minutes or something like that. It was something super surprising. Um, but he said when you start breaking the branches and disturbing all the microbes in the ground and all that different stuff, that's where you, that shit lasts a long time, actually. 
yeah, much longer, and they can they can age the track too to where like if you if you walk in in the morning and sit all day, by the time it gets to evening, if they hit your track, they can tell that that's a really old track compared mm-hmm. to a fresh track. So they it'd be logical to think that they'd react differently to thinking somebody walked through eight hours ago compared to eight minutes ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you look at a tra- anything that you get on a trail camera, if you have a coyote come through in the morning and you don't have deer come through, it doesn't mean the deer are going to come through there ever again for two weeks. It means that they're probably going to wait four to five hours and then they're going to move through it. Like, you know, we we've talked about prey animals on here plenty of different times with respect to white tail deer. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's different for each and everything. So you, you, you bring up a, a good point though. Um, tree stand height and scent control, or, I mean, for, for, for your, for your purposes, uh, saddle platform height and, and where you sit in a tree, what what is kind of your ideal height and everything for when you are trying to prevent scent from getting down to the ground and making sure that you put yourself in the best position possible for that uh, for that hunt? So I think there's so I think everybody is trying to control human odor in some way, regardless of what side of the spectrum you are. So there's active ways and inactive ways. So inactive ways to control your odor would be wind direction using the thermals and tree stand height. So if you're higher there, there's always going to be an odor benefit, you know, whether that correlates with a cover benefit or, or a topography benefit is kind of individual to each tree. I mean, I prefer to be, you know, fairly high. I use three sticks and an eight or I'm usually over 20 feet. But the one interesting thing with tree stand height is that when we train the dogs, if, if we put people at the same height, they always look at that height and they look for those same kinds of trees. Like if I put somebody in a maple tree every single time, they're always going to look at a maple tree. They won't look at an apple tree 10 feet off the ground. They'll think it's in the maple tree. So I think a lot of the benefit with guys sitting lower they're not sitting lower in trees that people typically sit high in. They're sitting lower in trees that people normally don't sit in. That's why they're not getting picked off. Cause the deer, the deer are like, like you guys scout public land. You can tell mm-hmm. where there could be a tree stand. The deer know, know the same thing. Okay. There's a corner. There's a nice looking tree. I'm sure there's a person <laughs> up there, but if, if they're walking down a ditch, where the trees are all 10 feet tall and they've never seen a person in that kind of tree in their life. They're not going to, they're not going to treat it the same way. That's good. I mean, this makes complete sense with the reason. So when you shot your Kentucky buck last year, Chris, and you said that deer didn't know like what the hell was going on. Like (laughs) I was one stick high. (laughs) You were one stick high. You were one stick high. And he was above me on a hill. And he was above you on a hill. And you were in yeah. a saddle, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, like in, in, in that instance, um, you know, 
You know, I, 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 I come, I come from a family where you sit anywhere from 20 to 30 feet high in a tree stand and, and, and you do that specifically that, that was, that is, or it was your way of scent control. And then it is, it is the very inactive sense. Like you, you worry about access somewhat, but you know, as, as you, as you look and you hear more and more from individuals like yourself, Dieter, as you talk about this, especially with training dogs, like you, they key in on trees where they would think that that stuff would normally be at. So a beech tree along a, you know, a path, a deer is going to look at that if the, if there's been a hunter there previously, or, um, what was the other one we've talked about before, Chris? There, uh, it's escaping me right now. Um, Re restate your statement here and let me with with regards to tree stand height and looking tree at it stand height and it's throwing me the hell off bro i don't even know how to spell height h-e-i h-e-i <laughs> i don't know height 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 thank <laughs> you height. <laughs> height my bad height, height. supposedly all right supposedly. go on um Oh, damn it! I forgot the question. Out, anyways. <laughs> but but I, I I'm happy to hear this that and see this a little bit more and more as we get more into the mo in the mobile scene with everything. It's great to see guys being able to do things a little bit differently than what has been traditional dogma with stuff. Yeah, and, and you know and. I, I am literally one of the worst people about this where you're coming out of your comfort zone. I, 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 I am, I am, baby but <laughs> baby steps. Um, but, but there, there's a reality. There's a whole generation of individuals that that is, that is kind of like the dogma of hunting is that you get 25 feet in a tree, you find a beach cause it's got leaves on it still at a certain point during the season and the deer aren't going to see you. But if you're hunting public land, and you've got bucks or does or whatever that are walking by those trees during a fall season. And they're pinpointing you every time. You're like, why am I getting blown out every time this is happening? Well, this is why. It was, well, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this because I was a 30 feet or die summit climber for life. And you're stupid if you hunt from a hang on or a saddle because <laughs> that shit don't work. And that's for fairies and it's a fad and all that, right? Well, then I got smart and realized what some of these guys were doing, the, the Dan and faults of the world and all these other dudes that literally are doing what Dieter talked about. You know, one it's of the, not the height, it's the location. Cause you're not correct. You're sitting in the same trees and going lower. You're going in different areas. Oh, dude. I killed at 10 feet last year, but so it's not about like that's where like guys like you can't do that you can't hunt that low yeah you can't you can't hunt that low on trees that you're supposed to hunt high on like right. it's in trees that you can't it's in totally different areas you're hunting usually thicker places and where you can't and especially public guys like i mean the easiest place to get away from people is to go hunt areas where there's not very many trees and that's where you find all the big ass deer bedded. Generally, we find big beds and stuff. You get in like CRP fields, corn fields, anything with all those little saplings, little autumn olive, willows, whatever. 
stuff that nobody would ever one of my favorite places i've ever hunted was down in kentucky and it's literally all locust and they're like four inches three inches in diameter they're tiny i freaking got in one of them and got up there and i didn't get to kill a buck but i i damn near pulled it off um on opening day uh just just didn't work out but um all those places where i I think it's they never see people and because they live and die basically by their nose when you very rarely smell a person in an area i think that hits home with them too like for example probably one of the coolest things i've ever heard on a podcast was the fork in the road theory when you have a trail going right and you have a trail going left it splits the woods and leaves a strip in the middle of it as everybody goes right or left nobody sits in the middle of the strip but multiple people that i've listened to have talked about finding big beds sheds you name it in those little strips because they can watch the trails and be you know safe enough i guess you know where they're laying down and hidden and at the same rate nobody ever thinks to to do that so kind of neat because that's like that i mean the you get away with way more on the first time sit just because they're not they're not prepared and i always try to make this analogy where like if tomorrow morning if i had to drive to work i'd pay attention quite a bit leaving my driveway pulling onto the road but then i'd be driving to work and i'd probably start daydreaming until my exit comes up and then i start paying attention again well you want to hunt them in the areas they're not paying attention so that's where destination areas are always difficult because that's where they get on the top of their game they figure it out am i safe am i not safe but there's large areas where they're walking through where they're oblivious to what's going on yeah you can get them there you're going to get away with way more where they're almost like you said like when you're able to kill them in areas where like they're totally like freaking shocked that's that's go time i remember the the greatest one i ever had was it was a morning hunt i went in i always i always go in gray light never go early but i ease my way in there in gray light i actually saw a big buck chasing a doe kind of through like uh it was more of an open area kind of let them walk by i get got to my tree and to get to my tree i had to go through like some thick it was like raspberry bushes and stuff like that where there wasn't even a trail to get to my tree but i just like made my way into there where you could see where i walked probably just get up to my tree doe comes running right by my tree full sprint and he's on her tail well he comes and he he hit that spot where i with that fresh crushed vegetation and he thought she went that way because he (laughs) know that so he went straight and it he dead ended at my tree like because there's no other trail and he just looked up and he's like oh crap (laughs) so that's a deer that's totally made a huge mistake had no idea what he was doing caught him totally off guard and then you know he wasn't paying attention to human odor he was paying attention to he was chasing a hot doe and he made the mistake of thinking she went down that that little trail that dead ended at my trail literally and figuratively there's nothing like that look on their face man i always equate it 
I think I might have told you this the other day. I always equate it to the ending of Departed, The Departed, where Matt Damon walks in and there's Marky Mark. He cannot believe he's waiting for him in his freaking bedroom, dude. The look on their face is priceless because they can't, you know, Jake Bush talks about them getting so good that they're kind of cocky and they just cannot fathom that somebody pulled one over on them. You're going to have to join us in Southern Ohio and play with some of these thermal hill country wind back deer. That looks like fun. It's fun. The only, the only, like, I, I like hunting hills and, and, uh, and this goes back to tree stand height and stuff like that. I, I prefer the leeward ridges compared to the wind ones. So I like leeward ridges where the trails within 10 yards and I blow over the top. Okay. Like I'll take the height advantage of being on the high side than, uh, than the low side. Okay. Because you get it, you get the thermal in the morning, and then in the evening, you're hitting it. Your odor's hitting at like a forty-five or a ninety-degree angle. Usually, if something happened, it's it's if they're close enough, it doesn't seem. Especially if you're the top of your tree has crested like the top of the flats on top to where the wind comes across, it almost like takes it straight over the top. So I like that. I like the high side of the trail. Yeah, it it's really, man, for me, it's like, it is a, it's like sitting down and taking an algebra test or something. Like, I just have to sit there and just pop milkweed and really, like, think about how fast the wind is blowing now versus what's it going to do six hours from now? And then is it going to calm down this evening? Is it going to be one of those stupid evenings where it speeds up a little bit, which I hate? Um, it's very very uh i get pretty deep in thought when we're picking a tree out when there's hills involved um it really comes down to what the wind speed's going to be for me josh i was just going to ask dieter about the wind speed what, what's your opinion on on wind speeds dieter do you find that a mature buck might move more if if let's say there's a six and six to eight mile an hour wind where it's kind of stiff and steady and they're able to use their nose a little bit better versus like one to two miles an hour and variable or what if it gets like real high let's say it's like 15 miles an hour plus what it's, what a, it, it's a weird question because i've seen it both ways like up up here if i get a north wind that's like 25 miles an hour blowing in my face snow in my face it's go time like they love it and that's on a, usually on windward ridges which i don't know why but that's what they like but typically like if i'm anywhere i want it over they just for like a noise the noise factor i want it i'd prefer like the five to ten is kind of the sweet spot for for wind and it used i mean it usually always will die right at the end and yeah you mm -hmm. watch the temperature because every so often though like guys don't guys sometimes don't realize like you get those days where the temperature's rising throughout the night. Like you're going to get a third pole almost the entire day. Like it's not going to, like that temperature is what starts yep. pulling air around. So you can, and it's the, it's the variance for how hard the pole is going to be. So if you're like 20 in the nights and 50 in the day, you're going to get, you're going to get a good pull. But like if you're 20 in the nights and 
28 in the day, it's just going to be it's going to be fairly stagnant. Change much, except where the sun's hitting. So, right. I mean, there's all kinds of different it's, stuff. Like, that's why I like that 90 degrees to the trail. Like you're not, it's not going anywhere they're coming from. So at worst case scenario, you're busted right in right yeah. in your wheelhouse. I, I agree but with no that. Matter, no matter what happens, if you get a good wind, a bad pull, a, a good pull, if it dies right at the end of the night, you'll probably get an opportunity before before it goes to crap if it does. But I usually I shoot most of mine in the morning and midday and stuff like that. Okay. That's, it's funny to hear somebody else talk like that too. Uh, where basically As Josh you is them, smirking. You got to give them something, uh, you know, like you can't, you just can't be bulletproof. Right. So it's like, where do I want my wind to go? And we'll talk to God a little bit and say, please, God, don't let a buck come from here. Um, yeah, as, long, as long as it's not going where the, you think they're going to come from. Yeah. And make it work. Some that, degree. That buck Rick brought up that I killed in Kentucky. So I had an EWO one stick with the platform on it and an ultimator three-step aider. So I'm like seven, maybe seven and a half feet high. The deer is significantly above me at, we'll say, 20 yards max. Um, and I had to do a weak side shot, and I couldn't get my bow drawn um, uh, on him because he had kind of got minorly behind me, just offset. So like, if I'm like this, he's just barely back at, we'll say 3.30, uh, you know, PM, AM, whatever you call it. So um, I had to literally step off. So I had to turn like this and step off of the platform. So I'm hanging on the tree. And as I come to full draw, as I'm drawing, I, I tried to stop him. But I was struggling because I'm trying to draw. I don't have my legs to power me at all. I'm hanging on the side of a tree and I'm trying to aim up a pretty significant hill. I mean, I'm a, I'm on a mountain not far from West Virginia. And <laughs> I remember trying to stop him. And most of the time I'll just be like, oh, or something like that. And it was like, ah, like that. And, and dude, he's like in open timber. There's no cover. I'm right in front of him. And, and he's looking around, can't pinpoint me anywhere. And the whole time I'm like, how in the hell did he not pick me off right away? But I just think it was one of those things, like what we were talking about, just not used to somebody hunting him at that height, you know? I don't know. Or maybe he was feeling stupid over a lady. I couldn't tell you. But it was one of the weirder things I've ever encountered because normally it's like, you're picked off like that. And and he was above me too. The thermals were rising and everything. And that's and I'm I'm the most anti-scent kill. What like I don't wash my clothes. I don't do any of that. And I had a hell of a morning getting in there. So I can't explain how that deer didn't destroy my life that day. But it was one of those weird things. Uh-oh, Rick's in trouble. <laughs> I told you it would be done by 10, boy. <laughs> There's a, going back to the height thing real quick. I've I started to hunt lower all, over the past few years, um, mainly because I'm getting into areas where I feel like most people aren't. 
and there's not a lot of trees to choose from so i'm kind of forced to hunt lower but it's kind of like what we talked about the deer really aren't expecting people to be there so i feel like i'm still playing the wind but i'm not really getting picked off that much as far as blown at from like downwind or something uh, but i feel like the height thing isn't hit on a lot there is <clears throat> there's a fairly prominent hunter that talks about scent elimination or reduction <laughs> that that I, I really let I me mean, you're I, just full of them tonight man just <laughs> by I, golly I, I pay attention to what he says i mean he's uh, how many he letters has, are we getting for this podcast <laughs> by the way <laughs> he has the accolades i've read some of his books like i pay attention to what he says but i just wish he would change his argument like just just talk about the height at which you hunt at and your scent dispersal and and all that stuff and then i feel like people wouldn't give him such a hard time but the the argument is different yeah i mean in 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 his defense like people get all riled up because they think he's lying and he's not lying that's mm -hmm. that's what his experiences are telling him's happened yeah. so he's he's being 100 truthful and he's gotten to the point where he's just so sick of having to defend it that he he gets <laughs> he gets annoyed with it. Yeah. which is fine because he's like he's like constantly being harassed by people who probably never shot anything and he's just got, <laughs> those are fun he's like whatever but i mean that's what he believes the height the heights part of it he he's doing a lot when you know to what we're talking about scent reduction he's going as far as you could possibly go with it so i mean it'd be you should think that that he's dropping his odor to you know somewhat of a significant level where i'm giving him a benefit but he's also combining that with with sitting very high so yeah and it's working for him and you know i mean and he has confidence in his system he's not gonna he's not and confidence can kill more deer than anything i mean if you're oh yeah if you're confident yes, you can that sit there longer you're going to pay attention better you're going to make better decisions you're going to push hunt the more. envelope you're going to do all kinds of things so i mean there there's no way that and i've i had i think i talked to him on the phone i think i might have talked yeah i did talk to him on the phone one time but i mean i he i mean he's beat I, I think people should give him the credit to where he's not lying he's not saying stuff to sell stuff that that's just what he believes and that that's what his life experiences have told him what's happening and you know whether or not it's accurate makes no difference i guess yeah no i agree i i like like him as a hunter i just I think people give him too hard of a time. But like you said, those are his experiences, and that's because he's he's arguing he's arguing with the guy who says, "Well, you can't control your odor because your breath." They're talking about they're talking two different languages. They're arguing yep. about something that they'll never come to the right conclusion with because they're not even they're not even talking about the same thing. And that, and a lot of it's because of what is like you're saying with the terminology with like scent free you know and i mean the and you know 
don't pay attention to the wind. But if you read his books, he likes to hunt scrapes and he always puts himself downwind of the scrape because the buck is going to be downwind of the tree and that's how he's going to shoot him. But yep. he's not he's not picking his spot for his older reason. He's picking it for his, his tactic, but mm-hmm. it 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 puts him in the the position he would want to be either way, you know, because he's downwind of the tree. Sure. So it's just uh so he basically the way he picks his kill spots is based on how he's going to kill the deer, but it happens to line up with where you would probably want to put yourself anyway, which would be down downwind of the destination. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I just think that the verbiage and some of the lingo needs changed and people would be wouldn't be so up in arms. You're yeah. way too confident in the way people think. <laughs> <laughs> I like I try and give some people credit. I know you do. <laughs> oh crap. Well should you ask him our question or should I, I, I want Josh to ask the question this time. Josh has been full of great questions tonight. So I want <laughs> yeah. Josh to ask the question. Did did either of you prepare Dieter for the question? We didn't. We never Absolutely prepare anybody for the better at our job. I had no idea what today would even be about. So, Peter Calkin. That's yeah. what I said when these guys asked me. I was like, we're just going to talk all things Dieter and leave it at that. <laughs> we're going to talk hockey, freaking taxidermy, e bikes, scent control, you name it. So, the question is, and we've, we've asked multiple people this, including ourselves. Um, <clears throat> if you could choose what what was your favorite thing you learned from this past hunting season and it could be deer hunting turkey hunting whatever it was what was your favorite thing that you learned hmm i think i mean the the biggest thing that that i've kind of got myself to embrace more would be to just embrace the process like enjoy the process of hunting i think we get we get caught up so much with with pursuing the result and wanting to kill this deer that deer that we kind of lose ourselves and don't enjoy like just walking out there in the morning and and sitting in the tree and having you know geese fly overhead so just enjoy the process not worrying about you know the results the results are gonna come you know stay at it have confidence but you know don't don't get so tangled up and consumed with with trying to get the job done that you just totally lose yourself and don't have fun doing what you love to do i like it i like it a lot that was a different answer too yeah that's we're getting older. We're starting to appreciate stuff. When <laughs> I told my wife, my wife thinks I'm a crazy person, which I mean, she's not all wrong, but I was on my last state last year, which was Indiana. And probably something that stuck out the most to me was that. So I had to get up at like 2 a.m. to make this drive and get there in time and make the hike in and all that. And I remember 
driving. I'm the only person on the road and there's a full moon and I'm sitting there. It's quiet and I'm sipping coffee and I'm just eating it up, man. Like this is the best day. And part of that is the coffee's hitting my bloodstream. <laughs> but I'm just like, this is going to be such a badass day. And it actually turned out to be a pretty badass day. I damn near pulled off a nice, I still had a good season, but damn near pulled you off did. a really crazy season. So, um, but just the weirdest things that I appreciate now. Uh, I don't know if it's age or what it is, but maybe I'm just getting smarter and get a little less testosterone and you're not like, I'm going to kill everything that moves today. <laughs> is it so easy to burn yourself out just mentally? Yes, you know, it is. If you're so like getting negative and getting down and getting, you know, consumed with, you know, maybe your lack of success where, yeah, you know, you need that, you need that confidence and you need that. And that, and that's where, if, you know, if you can just, if you can enjoy the process, like enjoy scouting, enjoy walking out there, enjoying picking a tree, then, then the results will, I mean, they'll, they'll eventually come. Maybe <laughs> okay. But as you're talking about that, I'm sitting there like, you know, now that I scout and I ask myself questions rather than going to the same tree and climbing 30 feet and sitting over corn and I'm like constantly dissecting things and asking myself why, whether it was, why did I kill that deer? Why didn't it work out? Why is this scrape like, you know, why, why, why? I find myself like almost trained to just break things down rather than, oh, that didn't work out. Poor pitiful me. You, you it's almost like having a, um, you know, basically your shot process uh, in the moment. If you have a good solid shot routine, you're thinking about that more than the deer. And it kind of just gets you away from that adrenaline for just a bit and focuses you on what you need to be focused on anyway. And uh, so it's, it's funny to hear that. And then of course you're like, you know, enjoy the process scouting i'm like oh that's my thoughts right now <laughs> good stuff i like it all right well all right we really appreciate you coming on man we're really excited to meet you here in july and uh we're we're pumped to be putting the old stealthy bikes out there so i can't yeah, wait northern show is gonna be a blast dude i so at the beginning of the year, I, I asked myself, man, will this Southern show be able to compete? And now I can't tell you which one I think is going to. I still think the Northern show has a little edge because it's in Michigan. I mean, it's it's Michigan, right? Like that's I don't know if there's another state that has that kind of um, heritage when it comes to hunting. Uh, when I lived up there, so I lived in Anar or uh, excuse me, Ypsilanti, and then I lived in Grand Rapids. And man, people—I mean, stuff shuts down. People take off work for a week or two to go to deer camp, and you know they're all everybody's talking about two tracks. I'm like, what the hell's a two track? We're gonna drive back this two track and blah blah blah. And I'm like, damn man, these people hunt a lot. Like, this is awesome. That, that's not like that in Ohio. It is now, but. 
I think it'll probably have a slight edge because of that, but we'll see, man. It's I know one thing. It's going to be a hell of a party. It's going to be a great time. Hell yeah. Well, so, Rick, you want to take us home? Nope. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. Oh, Jesus Christ, Josh. <laughs> Dieter, before we get off here, tell people, <laughs> tell people where they, they can find you, follow your stuff, um, where they can look up you know, your, your e-bikes and, and just everything you got going on. And we will put this in the liner notes uh, yes. that you can check in the podcast. So make, make sure you check there too. If you don't hear it here. Yeah. So on Facebook, Dieter Cocken, and then from there you can find the link or you can look it up. It's uh, stealth hunting e-bikes or online www.stealthhuntingebikes.com. And then on Instagram, it's, uh, I think it's stealth hunting for the bikes. And then I think I'm like, I think I'm at Ranger Matthews. I gave my old friend a little tribute. So <laughs> I, think I took his name for, for Instagram, but those are the couple places you can find me. And, uh, you know, if you have any questions, a lot of people buying bikes don't know what the heck they're talking or what they're looking for, what they want. So give me a call. We can get it figured out and get you what you need. All right. Sounds Good. awesome. I like it. Well, this has been Fueled by the Outdoors. We've been your hosts, Rick Hates, Chris Leppert, and Josh Luck. And we've been joined tonight by Dieter Cocken of Stealth E-Bikes and Face-Off Taxidermy. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll talk at you later. Bye. See you. Yeah. Bye. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast, a show where we sit down with outdoorsmen of the Ozark Mountains region to talk all things hunting and fishing. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts on everything from bear hunting, to fishing for smallmouth and trout, and discussing big questions like what happened to all the quail in the southeast. If you're enjoying this show, then I know you'll enjoy the Ozark Podcast. You can listen to the show on all podcasting platforms and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.